Well, hello, good morning. Uh, it's really good to be here with you this morning. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you to Kyle and the rest of the band uh, and leading us in worship. This is actually the second time that I've ever been to Carrick Baptist. My first time was a few months ago uh, at a friend's wedding. So I believe one of your former members, Danielle, was getting married to my friend. She's now Danielle Hall. Um, and so it's a real, it was a delight to be there then, and it's also a joy to be here with you today. If you do have a Bible in front of you, it'll be great if you could open it up to Psalm 19. That's where we're going to be this morning, Psalm 19. And I will read from verse 1. This is Psalm 19 and verse 1. For the director of music, a Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they display knowledge. They have no speech, there are no words, no sound is heard from them. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is God's words. Before we look at this passage together, let me just pray for us and then we'll dive into God's word together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this opportunity that we have together to open up your word, to read it, to study it. Father, we pray that you would give us understanding. Would you bring light to our eyes to be able to understand this? We thank you that your word is powerful, uh, that it challenges us, it encourages us, and it builds us up. And so we pray, Father God, that as we listen to it, please would you speak to us for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there's a film that I remember watching when I was growing up. You might have seen it. It's called Contact, uh, by the, based on the novel by the astronomer Carl Sagan. And it follows a character called Dr. Ellie Arroway. Dr. Ellie Arroway is a scientist uh, working in a space observatory, I believe somewhere down in New Mexico. And she's part of a team that is dedicated to looking for extraterrestrial life, so aliens to you and me. And she's part of this team, and, and just before the program gets its funding cut, she hears something from outer space. She hears this radio signal coming from 26 
uh, light years away, and it turns out that an alien civilization has made contact with Earth. And so Ellie Arroway and the rest of her team spend their time decoding these messages, and eventually they too make contact with this alien civilization. But if you were around at the time to see the films, you, you may have remembered on the movie posters they had this strap line. It said, a message from deep space, who will be the first to go? And so the big idea at the heart of the film is this. Is there somebody out there who wants to make contact with us, who wants to speak to us? And actually, I think that's a question that's not just within the realms of science fiction, but that is a very deep and basic question that almost every single one of us have asked. Is there someone or something out there, or are we just alone in the universe? Many people believe that God, if he does exist, has hidden himself from us, that he hasn't shown himself to us. Uh, a couple of months ago, we were doing a Christianity Explored course at our church, and one of the guys who was on the course said to us, well, look, I would believe that God existed if he only made himself very obvious to me. If he performed some kind of miracle and made it clear, then I would believe. Many people think that God has hidden himself from us, but actually, you don't just have to be a skeptic of Christianity to sometimes think that way. Even for many of us here this morning, perhaps, who have been Christians for many years, we might at times experience doubt in our faith, don't we? Perhaps particularly at those times when we go through suffering and difficult times, those questions can come to us. God, where are you in the midst of my suffering? Where are you in the midst of my trouble? I can't seem to hear you, your voice speaking to me. Well, that is exactly the question that we have addressed here by David in Psalm 19 today. Because what David is saying is that God has really revealed himself to us in two main ways. First, through his works, and then second, through his words. First, his works. Verse 1 says this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. So this is revelation without words, without speech. Now, as David gazes up into the night sky, what he sees, just as we see today, if we look up into the night sky, what he sees are messengers. The moon and the stars, they are all proclaiming this message that there is a God. And verse one, the message is this, that God is glorious. But notice verse three that David says that these are messengers who don't use words, they don't use any sound or any speech, and nevertheless, there is this very clear message. Now today, if you go into an art gallery, you will see, I'm sure, a few paintings and sculptures and other pieces of art, many of which are beautiful. But whenever you look at a picture or a painting, you don't look at that thing and think, gosh, I wonder where this thing has come from. Did it just pop out of nowhere? Now, very often, if you look closely at a painting, you will see the artist's signature, won't you? Maybe at the bottom left or the bottom right of the painting. And that signature tells you that there is a creator, a, a, a creative mind behind this piece of art. And in the same way, what David is saying is that whenever you look at the skies, you see there's a glorious design because there is a glorious designer. 
God is glorious in his power, in his magnitude. As we look up at the night sky, we, to the human eye, there are tens of thousands of stars that are visible to us. But scientists will tell us actually that there are trillions of stars in our universe. A number that is just too big for us to even comprehend. So God is glorious in his power, in his might, in the grandeur of his design. But he's also glorious, isn't he, in his creativity, in the fact that we can look out at the night sky or we can look out during the day and see the sun. And what we see are beautiful sunrises and sunsets. We see things like shooting stars and other sights that make us, uh, that stop us in our tracks. And what's more, more than that, it all works together so, so well. This is sometimes called the, the design argument or the fine-tuning argument for God's existence, especially over the last 60 years. Uh, it's been amazing that as scientists have studied the universe, what they have found is that there are more and more signs that all of it has been very intricately and finely designed. So there are around, I'm told, around 30 different constants that govern our universe. Just one of them is is the force of gravity. And if any of these constants were to be out, even by the tiniest of fractions, then life in our universe could not exist. It is so finely tuned. And that has led uh, some scientists, for example, one of them is called Paul Davies. He's an award-winning physicist. And he, uh, he has said this. There is, for me, powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. And so as we look out to the night sky, just as David did, we see evidence of a universe that is so well-designed that there's absolutely no chance that we could have just arrived here by accident. The glorious design points to a glorious designer. And this revelation is not only uh, without words, but it's constant and it's universal. It's constant. Verse 2, it says the creation speaks day by day and night by night. So in other words, every single morning as we draw open the curtains and we look out at the sky and we see the sun and we see the clouds, The message is, there is a God. He has designed this. It is constant, day after day. Every night as we pull those curtains back together before we do that, we look out at the night sky. Again, it's a constant message. God is real. And it's a universal message. Verse 4, their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. And this is the thing, actually, that makes the God of the Bible absolutely unique compared to other ancient gods. You see, in David's day, most of the other gods, most of the other religions in David's day believed that God was regional. So you would have a God of a particular nation or that God was fixed to just one aspect of creation. So you might have the God of the moon or the God of the sea or the God of the sun. The ancient Egyptians, for example, worshiped the sun god Ra. But what David is doing, especially in verses four to six, when we see him talk about the sun, what he is doing is he's putting the sun in its place. He is saying the sun is not God, but no, the sun is just a servant of God, just a messenger of God. It is pointing all of humanity to the one true and living God. This God who stands above and outside of his creation. The sun and the moon and the stars, they are just God's servants. 
And so this revelation is universal because everybody in the world can see it. Verse six says, there is nothing and no one that is hidden from the sun's heat. And so whether you are in Doha or Dublin, Beijing or Belfast, doesn't matter, you will see the same sun, won't you? You might feel the heat to a different intensity in Doha versus in Dublin, but you will still see the same sun. And in the same way, what David is saying is this, that God has revealed himself universally. And so no one uh, is, has an excuse when it comes to the knowledge of God. That is why Paul can say in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, he can say this, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. In other words, you might have friends today, or maybe you're here today and you believe this yourself. You might say, I don't believe there is a God. To me, there doesn't seem to be enough evidence. And the Bible's response to you is this. Well, you can believe there's no God, but you cannot say there's not enough evidence. Just look up. Look at the stars that you see. Look at the glory of God's creation. God has made to you himself very evident. So you can deny his existence if you want, but really what you're doing is you're suppressing the truth of who God is. God reveals himself to us through his creation. But actually, this general revelation only takes us so far. What we need then, second, is God's word. God's word. The iconic artist, Vincent van Gogh, he died in the year 1890. But just a couple of decades after his death, his private letters were published for the first time. Many of them written to his brother Theo, who he was very close to. And when you read his letters, you will find out much, much more about the life and the character and the thoughts of Vincent van Gogh than if you just look at his paintings. Because in his writings, he reveals his very heart. He reveals what he's really thinking. He talks about all kinds of things like his views on faith and the meaning of life, his views on love and relationships, and even his very, very painful uh, struggle with mental health. He talks about all of those things. And so even the best art critic in the world, just by looking at his art, will not be able to tell as much about Vincent van Gogh than you if you pick up his letters and read them. And so it is with God. God's artwork, his creation is infinitely more beautiful and glorious than Vincent van Gogh's. And yet, if that was all we had, if we just had creation, then we would be left with lots of questions, wouldn't we? Questions like, who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? And what is this God really like? Now, if you were to, at the end of this service, go outside today and look up at the sky and ask all of those questions to the sun, you wouldn't get back any answers, would you? And no, that's because we need God to reveal himself to us. And thankfully, that is what he has done. He's done that by giving us his words. And so David changes his focus here to to talk about God's word in verse 7. 
Now, verse 7 onwards in this little section, there are a series of, of couplets where David describes both what God's word is and also what it does. So the first one, for example, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, what God's word is and what it does. And also just to explain, whenever David describes God's word, he uses a number of different words. He says God's law, God's statutes, God's commands, his precepts, and so on. But for David, what he's talking about is the Bible. It is the Hebrew Bible. For David in his day, that was the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. But actually, you and I are in a far better position today, aren't we? Because we've got all 66 books of the Bible. That is what he's referring to, all of God's words. So what is God's word like? What does it do and what is it? First, briefly, let's look at what God's word is. David says in verse seven that it is perfect. It is without any flaw. There are no gaps, there are no inconsistencies, no faults. He says in verse seven, it's trustworthy. Unlike so many of our words today, you can trust every single word that is in the Bible. It's really comforting, isn't it? To know that we can pick it up and no matter what is going on in our world, that we can trust God and take him at his word. Verse nine as well says that God's word is firm or secure. It is unchanging. You see, God's word is not like the news cycle. Every single day we get more and more news, don't we? But that news maybe is relevant for one day, and then the next day, the next week, it'll be old and stale, constantly changing. Now God's word is different. It never, ever changes. Not only is it perfect, but it's pure. It's without evil. We can see that in the way that David describes it as right, verse eight, radiant, and verse nine, pure. So to sum it up, God's word is perfect and pure because that is what he himself is like. It's no surprise, is it, to think about someone you know, maybe a friend, maybe a colleague. Think of someone whose words are kind and loving. Well, you know that that's because that person themselves is kind and loving. And on the other hand, someone who is harsh and overly critical and unkind, well, you know that their words reveal what they are really like. So it is with God. He is perfect and pure. And so his word is perfect and trustworthy and pure. That's what God's word is. What then does it do? What does it do? The first thing is that it brings salvation. Look again at verse seven. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. Now, the NIV translates this as refreshing or reviving the soul. But actually, a better translation is that it converts the soul. It restores the soul. That's a more accurate translation of it. You see, according to the Bible, what our souls need is not just a little bit of light refreshment, a bit of rest and relaxation. What our souls need is conversion from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That's what David is really getting at here. There's quite a popular view of the Bible today that it's, it's basically a kind of Aesop's fables for Christians. Do you remember Aesop's fables, reading that as a child? Stories like the hare and the tortoise or the goose that laid the golden egg. These are really good stories and often they had a, a moral lesson that would teach people about kindness and courage and that kind of thing. But the problem with Aesop's fables is that they're not true. They're not true, they're myths. And they're all disconnected. They've no real relation to one another. 
And some people think today, well, that's what the Bible is. It's basically Christian myths, nice stories that give us a moral lesson. But the reality is the Bible is very different. The Bible is not a collection of disconnected myths, but no, it is one true story that leads towards and climaxes in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, isn't it? And so everything else, all the events, all the different characters of the Bible, all of them have to be understood in that context. It is all about leading up to Jesus. And so very briefly, the the plot line of the Bible, the plot line of salvation history, we could describe as this. That God made it, God made the universe, we broke it, Jesus fixes it, and then Jesus comes back. God made it. He made the universe, Genesis chapter 1, we're told, completely perfect. He saw that it was good, existing in perfect harmony with Adam and Eve, the first human beings. God made it. But then we broke it. Our first human parents, Adam and Eve, they sinned, they rebelled against God, they decided they wanted to be gods themselves, and so they brought in sin and death and destruction into the world. And actually, ever since that day, we all have been paying the price for that. We all suffer the effects of sin, and we sin ourselves. But then thankfully, Jesus then fixes it. Jesus comes into our world. He lives the perfect life that we should have lived. He dies his death on the cross in our place for our sins. And he brings us into a right relationship with God if we trust in him. And then finally, Jesus returns. There is coming a day when he will come back and he will wipe away, as Revelation 21 tells us, wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more suffering or pain. That is the big story of the Bible. That's the plot line of salvation history. And that is why the writer to the Hebrews is able to say these words at the beginning of of his letter. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So the Bible really is about the promise of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus, and the return of Jesus. And so the question for us today is this, have you trusted in this Jesus? Have you made him your savior, your Lord? Because actually until we've done that, until we've taken that step, there really is no point in opening up the Bible at all. Until we have asked Jesus to become Lord of our life. That is the first thing, it brings salvation. Verse seven, it converts or restores our soul to God. Then also David says it brings wisdom. Look again at verse seven. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. And verse eight, the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Now that well-known philosopher, uh, Oprah Winfrey, once said these words. She said, follow your instincts. That's where true wisdom manifests itself. In other words, if you wanna be wise, if you wanna live a, a good life, look inside yourself. Is that where wisdom really comes from? Well, I certainly hope not for my sake. I hope that wisdom doesn't come from me because if that were the truth, then I would have no hope. Now, the Bible says actually that wisdom doesn't come from within us. It doesn't come from our inner compass, but actually that every single one of us is simple. 
It's quite, brings us down to earth, doesn't it, that truth? No matter how intellectually clever you might be, actually in the ways of God, you and I are simple. We need God's divine wisdom, not just human common sense. And so as we've seen, God's word is not just a kind of Christian Aesop's fables, a moral instruction book to help us live a better life. That's not what the Bible is. And yet, when we put our trust in Jesus, then God does open up his wisdom to us. He does instruct us in all kinds of different ways. How to be a good steward of our resources. How to be parents who are godly and bring up our children in the right ways. How to get on with a a really difficult colleague or a boss. How to forgive them. All of those things, that wisdom is found in God's word. And yet actually probably the biggest way in which God's word is wise and brings us wisdom, is that it shines a light into the dark corners of our lives. That's really what David is getting at when he uses words like it's radiant, it brings light to our eyes. It really helps us to see how flawed and how sinful we are and how good God is. The idea is similar to the psalmist who says in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You see, if we don't read God's word, if we're Christians here today and we don't open up God's word, then we are like those people who get up in the middle of the night in complete pitch blackness and don't turn on a light and expect to be able to get around the house without any damage or injuries. That'd be really foolish, wouldn't it? No, if you're walking around in complete blackness, you're in danger of stumbling, you're in danger of falling. And so too, God's word is a lamp unto our feet. It shows us the path to righteousness, to godliness. And without it, we are completely blind. You see, without God's word, we are blind to our true nature and then we become wise in our own eyes. That's why there's so much dysfunction in our society today. Because when we leave God behind and his word behind, everyone becomes their own supreme authority. We'll just do whatever feels right to us. If somebody mistreats me, well, I'm just going to seek my vengeance on them. Whatever gender I decide to be, that's what's going to happen. Whatever it is that we see as wise in our own eyes, that is how uh, the way we'll operate if we don't have God's word. Thirdly then, not only does it bring wisdom, but it brings joy and delight. Verse 8 says this, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. And in verse 10, they are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. Now I realize here this morning that maybe honey is not to your particular taste. But for David in his day, honey was the sweetest substance imaginable. So maybe for you this morning, you can substitute just for a moment uh, chocolate cake or salted caramel ice cream, whatever it is that is the sweetest taste to you. David is saying that is what God's word is like. Sweeter than the sweetest thing. More valuable than the most precious metal. Why is God's word so valuable and sweet? Well, it's because God's presence is so precious, isn't it? And so in God's word, we not only have the means of salvation, we not only have wisdom, but we have great joy and delight because God shows himself to us through it. A.W. Tozer, the Christian writer, summed it up well when he said this, the Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God. 
that they may delight in his presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God himself in the core and center of their hearts. You see, there is a sweetness on offer in God's word. I can tell you a lot about honey just by looking at the bottle. I can tell you what color it is. It's a lovely golden color. I can tell you even some information about it. Many manufacturers will now put the nutritional values on the honey so you can tell how many calories are in it and that kind of thing. But it's only when I actually open up that ball of honey and taste it for myself that I'm really getting the benefit of it. Isn't that right? No point just looking at it, but we have to devour it ourselves to really taste and see that it is good. And the same is true of God's word. That is why regular reading of God's word is so important for us, no matter how long uh, we've been Christians, to make us wise and to taste and see that the Lord himself is good. How then do we respond? How do we respond to this? Well, David gives his response in verse 12. He says, but who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. So what David does as he looks out at God's works, the night sky and the sky during the day, and as he looks at God's word, he feels uh, humbled. I'm sure many of us have had a very similar experience as we look up into the night sky and we see the tens of thousands of stars that are visible to the human eye. We feel small, don't we? We know that we are not great, we are not powerful in comparison to this almighty God. And when we open up God's word and we read about God's holiness and his love and his goodness, we immediately see how far we fall short, don't we? And so David too has the same reaction. He says, Lord, help me not to commit those sins that I'm not even aware of. Forgive me for my hidden faults. Keep me from that sin. And that is a wonderful prayer for us to put into our own words, to look up at God's creation and to his word, to see God, you are good and holy and righteous and powerful, and I know that I'm not. But the wonderful news actually is that Whilst we are small, whilst we are sinful, God is so gracious, isn't he? He's so gracious. Look at David's parting words in verse 14. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You see, that very last word of this psalm is one of, if not the most important one. God is our redeemer. He's redeemed us through Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross, wiping away all of our sins, not because we deserve it, not because we could ever earn it, but because he himself is loving and kind. And so we respond to God's astounding revelation, as David does, through words of gratitude. The theologian Jonathan Edwards once said this, God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. You see, God's world is not just to be observed through the telescope of an astronomer, but it's to be rejoiced in by us with glad and sincere hearts to say, God, you are powerful, glorious, majestic, and you're loving and you're good. And so I want to worship you. 
May the words of my lips, the meditation of my heart, be pleasing in your sight. We're going to have an opportunity to do this right now as we worship God uh, by singing together again and also by taking the Lord's Supper together. But before we do that, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your amazing revelation to us, both through the world that you've created, but also, Lord, through your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are great and glorious, majestic in your power and your might. Lord, we are in awe of you this morning because of all that you've done. But Lord, we thank you so much, even more than the beauty and the wonder of your creation. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us this true story of Jesus Christ who's come into our world, who has died on the cross for our sins, who has forgiven us of all of our wrongdoing so that we can have eternal life. Father, we praise you again for this good news. And may we live a life that is pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.